0: So that I just start by kind of uh, revisiting what we have been considering over these last eight or so weeks since Easter. Uh, We've been saying that we are in an age, and especially in this age where it's so clear that for so many people, this isn't working. Life isn't working. We've called it an age of alienation. And in this age in particular, it is so important for us to realize that when Jesus died and rose again, it wasn't just for the forgiveness of our sins, but he gave us a new way, a new way of life, a a way where we can be creatures who are joyfully reconnected to God, joyfully reconnected to creation, joyfully reconnected to each other. We've called this the way of wonder. And in the last few weeks, we've been focusing on how Scripture is very clear in saying that the way that we learn this way, this way of Jesus, is together, That we can't do this as individuals, we can only do this communally, that what we need to be is this growing, mature community, an eccentric community, because Jesus is at our center, and in this community, the way of Jesus becomes more possible. And what I'd like to do this morning is to to kind of explore a little bit more of the how, like how how a a group of Christians, as we are kind of working together to try to become this mature community, how this takes place. And the way I'd like to do that is by considering um, a a, a moment in the New Testament church history where that didn't happen, where a church had kind of a, a stuckness, a problem of growing up, and that's the Corinthian church, Uh, The Corinthian church, we will see, is a church that, on one hand, personally, has this kind of uh, maturity of belief, or at least they have a belief in Jesus. They've been baptized in Christ. At an individual level, their belief is right. But at a communal level, you could say their economy is not shaped by the gospel. Uh, Economy, I should say, you know, when we hear economy, we almost always immediately go to kind of like the financial side of it. I'm using this in kind of the broader idea of the word economy. The word economy originally just comes from the idea of household membership, uh, household stewardship, excuse me. And and it's a word that basically speaks about kind of the logistics of how a community works together. A community, you know, who does what? How are things exchanged? What is the kind of most important? What, what, what is valued most within a community? That, that's economy. Economy is the logistics of a community. And what we see with the Corinthian church is that while on one hand their belief is, is Christian, their economy is still very pagan. The way that they deal with each other has still not been shaped by the gospel. To explain a little bit more, it's probably good to back up. Um, so when this passage that was just read from uh, was first written, and it was in like 55 A.D., is when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians. And it's important to recognize that at that time, the New Testament did not yet exist. Right? I mean, letters were still being written. The Gospel hadn't yet even been—you know—the Gospels hadn't yet been assembled. Um, which meant a church like the Church of Corinth, when they were trying to figure out how to live the way of Jesus, they didn't have the Sermon on the Mount. When they were trying to understand what it looks like to be a church, they didn't have Ephesians. What they had was the Old Testament and what the apostles that they had met or the teachers that were mentored under the apostles taught them. So during this season, the Holy Spirit worked in a very specific way. We've we've talked already about how today is Pentecost where we celebrate God giving His Spirit to His church community. And in that time, when the New Testament hadn't yet been formed, the Holy Spirit kind of stepped in in unique, miraculous ways to help move his church forward. So because you couldn't yet have someone kind of teaching the New Testament, God gave through the Spirit the gift of prophecy, where people could speak and say, this is what God says. Uh, because you couldn't yet test whether people were false or true teachers. God gave certain people at that time the gift of discernment, so they could just kind of know by the Spirit whether what this person was saying was true or not. Because we didn't have the record, or they didn't have the record, of some of the gospel miracles, or some of the miracles the apostles did, then God also gave the gift of healing and other miracles for particular churches to authenticate and say, this is truly a work of God. There were these gifts that for this specific time the Spirit gave to His church. Now the Spirit also gave the gifts that He continues to give today, the gifts of help or administration, all the other ones that probably seem a little bit less awesome, a little bit less interesting and dynamic. And it was this kind of um, asymmetric, this this different ways of giving gifts that the Holy Spirit worked that gave rise to the problem in the Corinthian church. So all of these people, these Corinthians, before they were Christians, they'd grown up, of course, in the Greco-Roman world, in the city of Corinth. And within that world, there is a social pecking order. If you were a land-owning, wealthy Roman citizen, you were at the top, you had status, you had prestige, you could do whatever you wanted. Then you might have the Roman citizens who weren't quite so wealthy, then the wealthy people who weren't Roman citizens, and keep on going down until the very bottom, of course, are the slaves. That's just how the the Roman economy worked. There was a, a hierarchy of value within human beings. And so, as the Corinthian church experience this life in the spirit. They still have this this grid, this way of understanding how humans relate to each other in the back of their minds. And so they start doing the same thing when it comes to gifts. There are the super spiritual, the awesome, the ones who can do prophecy and speak in tongues and miracles. And, And then you've got the ordinary ones over here. You've got this class system. They have imported this kind of pagan economy, this way of relating to each other that has nothing to do with the gospel. And so what Paul is doing here in this chapter is saying, no, I I want you to understand that's not how it works. Within the way of Jesus, the community of Jesus has a different economy. It is an economy of divine grace. And what I want us to do is just to notice three Three traits, three attributes of this different way, when Paul is trying to correct the Corinthian church, that will help us to understand also how we are supposed to work together as we're seeking to be this mature new community of Christ. So, so first of all, and if you don't have your um, the passage open, I invite you to do so because we'll just be kind of looking at these different verses uh, throughout chapter twelve. But, but one of the first things that we should notice that Paul is saying is that in the divine economy of grace, everyone is gifted. So he starts at the very beginning of our passage by trying to correct the Corinthians' understanding of how the Holy Spirit works. So verse 3 says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And here's what he's saying. He's saying you are associating the Holy Spirit with the really miraculous and dynamic and exciting. But let me tell you, the Holy Spirit really isn't just about the dynamic by the world standards. What the Holy Spirit is about is Jesus. That's what the Holy, is center to the Holy Spirit, His work. When, when God in His love wants to give us everything, He gives us Jesus. And the way that Jesus comes to us and all of His gifts come to us is through the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to give us Jesus. So, whenever we are, are brought to this awareness that we have failed God and, and what we've hidden from our eyes, suddenly we acknowledge in confession. That's the Spirit, leading us independence when when then we also hear the news of the gospel and we come to realize wow jesus actually truly does love me he has died for me that's the spirit breaking through when we are gathered together and and, in music like what we just sung he will hold me fast and we feel the reality of that and we are united in praise of our god and jesus that's the spirit the spirit's work is to lift jesus and to make him more real to us to to fill us with jesus And and the point that Paul is making is that that's what the Spirit does. It's it's not about the showy versus the not showy. If you are a Christian, God has given you the Spirit. If you are a Christian, that means you are spiritual. There isn't the spiritual and the not spiritual, the haves and the have-nots. All of you have the Spirit, which means all of you are gifted, and all of you in the divine economy are important. Now, on one hand, that's important for those who, who feel very kind of full of themselves because they have these dynamic gifts, but it's also important for those to f- here who, who don't. You can imagine how in a church like this, if there was this kind of almost class system, how, how some might feel like their contributions were insignificant. They might even, because they don't do the kind of awesome things that other people do, just kind of slowly disconnect and see themselves as just kind of less important. But Paul is saying here in this passage, you have it wrong. You're you're thinking the old way. This is a different economy. This is not an economy of classes and competition. If you want to understand how the divine economy works, you need to recognize that it's much more like a body. So, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. If you belong to Jesus, you are a part of his body. You might be a finger, you might be an elbow, you might be an ear. You are part of the body, and therefore that makes you significant for the body. In fact, that's exactly where he goes. He, he, he teases this out. Uh, verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Um, just imagine this for a second. Imagine being a foot. Um, I don't know, that's a weird thing to say. But just trying to imagine, like, you know, you're, your whole life you're stepped on, right? And and your, your skin is oftentimes dry, you stink, you're hurting all the time. And then you think about the hand, the elegant hand that oftentimes is clean, that is just able to do so many things. It can write, it can hold a hammer. The hand is awesome. Imagine the foot going, I just, I just don't belong. I'm not the hand. I mean, the body wouldn't do so well. I mean, you need the foot... You know, to stand, to run, to play soccer. Paul says, imagine the ear, the ear going, oh, I'm not an eye. I mean, the eye, I mean, I need sound, but the eye can just see. And not only that, I mean, does anyone ever lovingly gaze into someone's ear? (laughs) The eye just, you know, glistens with tears. The ear is full of wax. I mean, this is just, I don't want to be an ear. But if that's the way it was, Paul says, if every ear just became an eye or just left the body, where's the hearing? We understand the point. Paul is saying, you might not have what looks so dynamic by the world's standards, but that's not the way it works in the body. In the body, every part is important. Every part is functional. You are gifted by the Spirit, and you are needed. Now, when we just think about us today, I think... It's not as much the case in our present day that we kind of divide it based on, like, the supernatural, dynamic spiritual gifts or the other ones. That's less of our issue. But I do think if we think about the way that our society is, there is another way we might do things. We, we, we live in what some people have called a meritocracy, right, where oftentimes people are valued for what they can produce, what they can contribute. So by the world's standards, if you have one of these three things, if you are wealthy, I mean wealth... You can do more, you can be honored, you can give. Or if you're productive, maybe you're smart, or maybe you have some really specific skill. Or if you're fun, you know, maybe you're attractive, or funny, or charming. If you are one of those three things, or any combination of those three things, then, then you're valued. You, you add value to a group. But if you're not, say you're an awkward introvert, introvert who doesn't have any marketable skills. Well, you're kind of not as important by the world standards. And all too often, the church can import that way of seeing each other. And when you do do that, when when a church ends up only valuing the, the strong and the beautiful and the rich, well, you might have an efficient community that gets stuff done, but what you don't have is a community capable of growing in maturity and becoming like Christ. Because God has organized every part, we are told, in such a way that we grow together with each other. We need every part, even the parts that the world doesn't see as quite important. I was reading a story of a couple who spent a lot of their time for a few years in a leper colony. And other people, you know, they said, you know, other people say to us, wow, you know, you're just doing so much to people who are in such great need. You're giving so much. And like, you don't understand. That's not how it is. We actually need each other. When we step into this community where there's suffering, there's mental illness, there's all stuff, there's a way that as we experience their dependence and their trust and grace that we experience Jesus more deeply than we ever have before. Because this is part of his body, and through their suffering, we see Jesus. That's the work of the Spirit. I've not had that experience, but I can think of a time many years ago where I was part of a, I suppose you could say a very large, wealthy, incredibly competent church. But I would say one of their most important parts of their congregation was a community within the church of mentally disabled people. Some of them weren't even able to speak. But once a year, they would help lead the church in in singing. And throughout the year, people would be connected with them, and you'd see them in the hallways. And their simplicity of joy and the reality of their faith, without all of the complexity that we throw into it, shows the rest of this church that it's not about competency, it's not about wealth, it is about Jesus. There is a way that they, more than anyone else in that church, spoke the words of the gospel to this congregation. They were needed. The things that oftentimes the world values least are what is most important in the church. God has given every single one of you, if you belong to this church, if you are a believer in Jesus, He has given you His Spirit, and, and some combination of who you are, what you've experienced, the strengths you bring, and the weaknesses you bring, the, the triumphs and the failures, somehow He uses all of these things. And he uses that to contribute to the community. We need each one of us because God has gifted each one of us for the purpose of the community. And that brings actually to the, to the second distinctive of how God in his divine economy, how, how it works within his community, and that is within God's divine economy, the gifts he gives are not only possessions, they are also Responsibilities. So, we see that if we back up for a moment to to verse 7, to each, Paul says, is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That's what we've been saying, right? That there's a way that each of us manifests the Spirit, that the Spirit does something in and through each of us to help people experience Jesus more fully. So, it says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what purpose? For the common good. Now again, this is kind of a rebuke about how the Corinthian church experienced things. They, they oftentimes, like they were accustomed to in the world around them, if they possessed a gift, they were using that as a possession to kind of give them more honor and glory and superiority. They, they saw it as something that advanced their own purposes. And Paul's like, no, that's not actually how it works. When you are given this gift, you are given for the purpose of, of giving others. The more gifted you are, the more responsibility you have, because every gift God has given, he has given for the sake of the community. And what we have here actually is a, a window into this kind of larger idea of how God in his generosity works. Now, throughout scriptures, we see that when God gives, he truly gives. I mean, there are possessions. This isn't communism where it's like there's no public, and there's no possessions. It all belongs to the public. He truly gives to people with generosity, and yet, when he gives, it is not the way that our world sees it, where the possessions that we have are just for our own purpose to do whatever we want, and if we want, we can be generous, but if we don't want, that's fine too. No, it says that when he gives, whatever he gives, whatever abundance we experience, it is so we can give to the community where there's need. So... uh, in, in the second letter to the Corinthians, we see a very specific example of that, where there is a church that is in great need, a church in Jerusalem. And he's speaking to the Corinthian church, and, and here's what he says to them. He says, what I'm asking, I was, because he's asking for them to give, it is not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need so that their abundance may in turn meet your need, in order that there may be equality. And then he's quoting from the description of manna in the Old Testament, as it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. Do you hear what he's saying here? He's saying, whenever we are given more than we need, that abundance is not for the hoarding. That abundance is actually a privilege that is given to us so that we can give to others. Whatever gifts we have, whatever extra we have, it is a responsibility for the community and for those in need. I've been been thinking, I've been kind of like teasing this idea throughout this week. And I have to say, you know, we've been talking about how there's kind of this work in progress, right? That we as a community are working towards maturity where the way of Jesus can slowly become more possible in our vision. And I think I've realized that a lot of my thinking is still so much shaped by a non-gospel thinking that I'm only beginning to understand what this means. And so rather than actually me trying to tease this out, I thought I would go to someone from a different culture, different time. Basil of Caesarea was one of the early church fathers, one of the people who's responsible for the way that we understand the Trinity today. So he's an important theologian. And in a sermon, here's, here's how he kind of expanded on this idea. He, he said, Did you not come forth naked from the womb? And will you not return naked to the earth? Where then did you obtain your belongings? If you say that you acquired them by chance, then you deny God since you neither recognize your creator nor are you grateful to the one who gave these things to you. But if you acknowledge that they were given to you by God, then tell me, for what purpose did you receive them? Is God unjust when he distributes to us unequally the things that are necessary for life? Why then are you wealthy while another is poor? Why else but so that you might receive the reward of benevolence and faithful stewardship while the poor are honored for patient endurance and their struggles? The bread you are holding back is for the hungry. The clothes you keep put away are for the naked. The shoes that are rotting away with disuse are for those who have none. The silver you keep buried in the earth is for the needy. You are thus guilty of injustice toward as many as you might have aided and did not. As I said, I don't know fully what to make of this, but I think I think he is right what he is saying. And I suspect actually many of us agree when I think about how our church, whenever there is a need that is put before it responds with generosity, I think we recognize collectively that with the the blessing that we received, with the abundance of gifts that we received, that gives us responsibility as well. But I suspect like you, I am still, I mean like that like me, you are also still in the process of trying to understand, what does this mean? What does it look like to to move towards this recognition that in the divine economy, that every time that we have been given more than we need, it is for the purpose of helping others? But one thing that is clear to me, this is not meant to be this miserable burden. This is actually speaking of a privilege, we have been given the gift of being able to help those in need. That is something that God has ordained for us. Every gift we've been given is with a purpose to give, whether it's to the community or outside of the community. And Jesus says it is, it is more blessed to give than receive. This is how the divine economy works. We have been given the responsibility of helping others. And that brings us to the final The final distinctive that we see in Paul's instructions here in 1 Corinthians 12, and that is that when we see the way that Paul that God gives, how he gives unequally, as Basil of Caesarea said, we should recognize that he gives in this kind of asymmetric way, specifically because of his love for the community and his desire to unify them. So I don't know if as you've been reflecting on what we've been seeing so far, if you've wondered, okay, this feels, I don't know, kind of inefficient. I mean, so God gives one thing to one person, another thing to another person, why doesn't he just kind of give everything that one person needs to that person and everything that person needs to that person? It seems like that would just kind of work way more easily, because self-sufficiency kind of is nice. Independence is kind of nice. That was what the Corinthian church desired. I mean, you can kind of see evidence for that when, when he says in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The only reason he's saying that is because there's some people like, I don't really want to need anyone else. I'm good, thanks. That, that certainly is how, in our day, what is valued, right? That we, we want a sense of self-sufficiency, a sense of independence. That is what we strive for. And I think there's a sense that actually that doesn't change for many Christians. There are many who kind of feel like, you know what? I'm, I'm probably mostly good without the church. I, I think I can kind of fend for myself. But, but that isn't, of course, what Paul says is the case. I mean, again, he has just said, the, I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. We've already talked about that. We, we need each other. In fact, in verse 22, he says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Those parts that sometimes are seen as less valuable, we actually need to invest more in. And and the point that he's making is is we actually need every single part. I mean, this is, again, what we were saying just a little while ago. I mean, the children need adults to teach them, right? But adults, we adults actually need the children to help us to see kind of what a simplicity of helpless faith looks like. Those who are are weak or grieving or sick or in chronic pain need other people to help care for them, but we also need them to show us that the gospel holds true and is real even in the most difficult times of this life. We we all need each other. We all depend on each other. That's how God has designed things. And, And then Paul explains here is why. Verse 24, the second half of it. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Do you see what it's saying? Think about this for a moment. So, We live in the western suburbs where, as I said, self-sufficiency and independence seems to be one of the primary virtues that people pursue. Um, So, you know, if someone has a need, rarely does someone actually ask for help. What they do is they hire someone. You know, if you've got something wrong with your house, you hire someone to fix it. If you've got something wrong internally or emotionally, you 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 hire someone to fix that, you go to a therapist. And I'm not saying those things are wrong, but just think about the outcome of that. Whenever you do something like that, you have a nice, clean, neat transaction. You have paid, there is no more debt, and there is no more relationship. It's over. Now, contrast that with, say, a community where people have to depend upon each other, where if you are struggling, you actually talk to a friend, and the friend is willing to listen, and the friend knows that they can do the same thing for you, and if if you need a new part or like some, some sort of tool, you ask for another friend, and all of this kind of depending upon each other, what does it do? It strengthens the connection between each other, and that, Paul says, is the way the divine economy of grace works. Each of us brings something. Maybe you have developed this gift of, of, of musical skill and you've worked at that and you bring that to the community. Or, or maybe you are just someone who puts people at ease. And so when someone feels like an outsider, you help make them feel welcome. Or, or maybe you are someone who just has been given time, time that you can spend in the presence of others, time that you can spend caring for others. Or maybe you are someone who actually, in your weakness and dependence, help people to see how the gospel works. Each of us brings something. Each of us give something and yet each of us receives so much from each other and what happens is there's a sense where we are both givers and debtors and yet neither of these because that's not how it works instead it's like every time something is given every time something is received it's like another thread is woven into the fabric of the community So that they are being united more and more deeply by every time there's this giving and receiving and this sharing. That's how it works. And and the result is, well, it's unity. So that when one person hurts, we are so connected to each other that all of us hurt with that person. When one person is honored, we all feel honored because that's how a body works. That's how it works in the divine economy. This is different from the world, but it is it is beautiful. What, what Paul is, is is speaking to each of us this morning is he's telling that you need to understand that the moment you placed your trust in Jesus, even before that, the spirit was at work in you. And that spirit is doing something in and through you that your community needs. It is a responsibility you have that as each person exert the responsibility and gives that is how as a community we become unified and we grow in maturity in christ jesus that is how it looks and perhaps even now as we're thinking we're wondering what is it what is the way that that we what is my unique contribution how am i called to give you know one of the common things That churches will do is they'll have some sort of kind of like survey, a test that you can take where you fill in some bubbles and you find out that you have the gift of helps or whatever. I'm becoming increasingly skeptical of that because I have never seen a gift survey that talks about the gift of weakness or the gift of grief. Or or the gift of helplessness. And yet, these are part of the ways the Spirit works to exalt Jesus. And I notice here that Paul doesn't conclude this by saying, all right, now you need to figure out the way the Spirit has gifted you. What is your particular manifestation of the Spirit? No, that's not where he goes. Do you want to know where he goes when this whole chapter is done? He says, okay, now that I've said this, now let me show you a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. That's where he goes. He goes to saying, here's what you need to do now that you understand the way this works, now that you understand the divine economy, here's your calling, love. Seek to love each other. You've been loved by God, love like Christ, and as you do, wait and see what the Spirit will do through you for the community.